Please include the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. in your year-end giving. You can donate online at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call 618-223-8385. For a year-end gift of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Over Ruled 3, Answering Arguments Against Christianity, and a new recording of 15 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support at the end of 2023. So, there are a lot of excuses, a lot of justifications. One might even call them arguments, although a lot of them don't even amount to arguments, for abortion. What about the case of fetal disability or abnormality? What about rape or incest? Or the classic, my body, my choice. More of an assertion than an argument. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to respond to the choice argument for abortion, Pastor Michael Salamink. He's executive director of Lutherans for Life, author of a chapter for the forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3, Answering Arguments Against Christianity. His chapter is titled, Abortion is Just a Woman's Personal Choice. Michael, welcome back. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here and to talk about a very important matter. In general, why do we need to talk about abortion? Primarily because it concerns our neighbors, uh, neighbors who are facing surprise pregnancies, neighbors who may be facing surprise pregnancies in the future. But secondly, because it concerns our culture and we want to be able to give a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ and life issues like surprise pregnancy provide an opportunity to give that kind of witness in a way that is culturally relevant. And then thirdly, because God's word speaks about the sanctity of human life. Abortion is one of those means by which the sanctity of life is under assault by the devil, the world, and our sinful nature. And so we want to be able to speak God's word into those situations, especially as they affect people very close to us, including uh, our brothers and sisters in the church. You say that no woman needs to go through a pregnancy alone. What do you mean by that? Every woman is surrounded by the people that God has placed in her life, the people to whom God has given vocations to serve. But more importantly than that, God himself promises to be with everyone who's experiencing a pregnancy surprise or otherwise, because pregnancy only comes about as a result of God's direct intentional will. We know this because there are some couples who do everything in their power to procreate and they are not able because God is the one who opens and closes the womb. And he is the one who grants the gift of new life. And so he will provide everything that is necessary for that new life as well. God has promised to be with each and every one of us in difficult situations, as well as to bring good out of those situations. So the body of Christ and God himself are with all of the women and men experiencing surprise pregnancies, but then also the baby, the child, goes through that surprise pregnancy with mom, everything they share those experiences. And that's sort of a, a ready-made relationship connection that God builds into the situation. In human terms, who else, just give it a list, who else is involved in every pregnancy? In addition to a mom and baby, you've also got the father, but then everyone who is a part of that mom's social network or community. And so her immediate family, also the grandparents, so that would be mom's parents. Those grandparents have 
hopes and dreams, vested interests in the life of their grandchildren. But even outside of that immediate network of social support, there are the doctors and the nurses, the pharmacists and the manufacturers who are responsible for providing care in those situations or for making the devices or substances that make abortion possible. And then the ripples go further out from that to uh, the people that mom has vocation to serve or to share life with, her colleagues, her coworkers, clients, people that she serves. And then citizens who are in similar situations are going to be affected by the way mom handles her pregnancy, but also public officials, journalists, researchers who are thinking and writing about the sanctity of life. All of those folks are affected because God has just designed humankind to be connected. It's part of what makes human beings wonderful is that you can't survive without community. You can't get by without relationships. And so there's no such thing as a personal choice or a private sin. St. Paul says in Romans chapter 14, none of us lives to himself alone. None of us dies to himself alone. And 1 Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one is honored, all rejoice together. And that's just the way that God has intertwined us. What harm does abortion do to the mother? What do we know about this? There are numerous studies in places outside of the United States, and the reason why this data is useful is because in contexts where there is socialized medical systems, they keep meticulous records, and so we're able to derive conclusions from large representative samples in places like Southeast Asia or Northwest Europe. There are lots of studies that show that there are lifelong medical and emotional effects that will affect 20 to 30% of women who undergo abortions. That's even in addition to the immediate effects of harm that abortion causes to a woman's body, including pain and hemorrhaging, sometimes hospitalization. There can be retained tissue from an incomplete removal of the baby's body tissue, and then a subsequent surgery is necessary. But in the long term, abortion is associated with significantly higher risks for reproductive system cancers, breast cancers, infertility, risks to future pregnancies, even PTSD. There's a particular type of PTSD called post-abortion syndrome. At Lutherans for Life, we have a direct care ministry of hope that helps provide relief and healing to women who are dealing with post-abortion syndrome. And that the really wild thing is the statistics show that four in 10,000 pregnancies Four of those mothers out of 10,000 pregnancies will die in the year after having an abortion. And that's die from all causes. And that's four times as many as women who give birth. And so there's a whole nexus of factors that go into play of quality of life after having an abortion. That also includes the fact that women regularly die from legal abortions, whether those be surgical procedures or chemical procedures using pharmaceuticals. Abortion is just so poorly regulated that there's a lot of complications that go underreported. What does the argument, my body, my choice, say to a pregnant woman? I believe it speaks a message of judgment, says sort of you're on your own. And I think this is what the devil is after, right? My body, my choice sounds like freedom. It sounds like liberty. I can do whatever I want with my own body. But the way that the devil spins it is it's, it's your body. It's your choice because 
no one else has a right to do anything to you and no one's going to be there to help you. That's the lie that the devil tells you. You're all on your own. This is your body. It's your choice. And so whatever happens is your fault. It's your problem to solve. And that sense of those circumstances can put a lot of pressure on a woman who's already experiencing pressure because of pregnancy. There's a lot of anxieties that go along with becoming a mother and raising a child, giving birth. But then on top of that, the belief that, the mistaken belief, the deception that I'm all on my own, I've got to find a way to get through all of these difficulties. The devil's got you right where he wants you because then it's all your fault and he can divide you from the other gifts that God has given you. Along with all these concerns, Michael, why do we need to remain focused on the child in the womb? Primarily because the cultural rhetoric in the United States over the course of about the last 50 years has focused exclusively on mom. And it does a disservice to mother and father as well, but also a disservice to the culture for us to ignore or overlook another neighbor. And The science is very clear about this, even though the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision in 1973 basically came to the conclusion that there's no consensus about when human life begins. It's all up to a person's individual religious beliefs. That's actually a lie. There is consensus across disciplines, consensus across worldviews that a new human life begins at the moment of fertilization. From the perspective of science, there are criteria that every unborn embryo meets that meet the definition of being alive. Every embryo grows. She undergoes respiration. She responds to stimuli. She metabolizes her own energy. Even more than that, though, Every embryo is is not just part of mom's body, but according to a scientific framework, is an independent organism. And there are commonly accepted scientific criteria for that, developing towards maturity, coordinating body processes and functions for the good of the whole, adapting to the environment, repairing damage. Every embryo meets all of those criteria. And so it's very clear that we're not talking about part of mom's body in the same way that hair or fingernails or a cancerous tumor is part of mom's body. Every embryo has his own distinct DNA, and that DNA defines him inarguably as a human being. So we're talking just from a scientific sense about a living human being, independent organism in the sense that happens to reside in mom's body and have some physical connections to that. But only by a deceptive stretch of language can we talk about that as part of mom's body. And the scriptures confirm the same thing. The scriptures assign independent personhood to the new human life beginning at the moment of fertilization. Psalm 139, you formed my inward parts. Psalm 51, I was sinful from the moment of conception. And even Luke chapter one, when the virgin mother goes to visit her relative Elizabeth and the baby John the Baptist leaps in the womb for joy at uh, the sound of mother's voice and the, the presence of the unborn Lord there scripture and science agree on this point. And so it would be dishonest and irresponsible for us to ignore the fact that we have multiple neighbors involved in every surprise pregnancy. You say only her size, location, development, and dependency make her, that is the unborn child, anything unlike you and me. What do you mean by that? This is actually a very helpful framework that was developed by Scott Klusendorf, who is a pro-life apologist called the SLED test. So size, level of development, 
environment or location and degree of dependency. And these are the categories of things that make unborn children, whether that's an embryo or a fetus that's ready for birth, different from the rest of us who are already born and existing outside of the womb. Size, so we're larger than an embryo or a fetus. Level of development, some of us have reached full maturity, our, our adult stage. Some of us are in other stages of development, and we have different names for those stages, whether that's infant or toddler or adolescent. Then the environment, uh, so some of us live uh, in the United States, some live in Vietnam, some live in Argentina, some live uh, in houses, some live in apartments. But then degree of dependency, which I think is especially important distinction. It's not that embryos and fetuses are dependent upon others for survival and the rest of us are not. In fact, all of us are dependent upon one another to one degree or another to meet some of our basic needs, whether those be physical, social, emotional, intellectual, or certainly spiritual. What Scott Klusendorf suggests is that discriminating, treating somebody differently based on any one of those criteria, size, level of development, environment, or degree of dependency, would not be accepted in any other case by reasonably minded people. We would call that discrimination, would be unfair treatment if we were to suggest that somebody has less value as a human being because they're under six feet tall, or that a mother should have the right to end the life of her three-year-old if that three-year-old should develop a disability or otherwise become a burden or an inconvenience. And so if we're going to be logically consistent, we need to be able to see that those differences, the things that make us different from children in the womb, actually do not contribute to a difference in value. How does abortion very often not involve anything close to informed consent? Oh my goodness, we're finding so much about this through surveys and studies that are being done. We hear from as many as two-thirds to three-fourths of post-abortive women who report that they felt significant pressure to undergo abortion by at least one significant person in their life. We also hear from the same numbers of women, in some, in some cases higher, 75, 80% of women who are post-abortive who say that if one significant male in their life, baby's father or mother's father or husband, had expressed support for or offered assistance in carrying pregnancy to term and caring for the child, the woman would not have chosen abortion. I personally believe from having had conversations with lots and lots of women who have undergone abortions that the vast, vast majority of time, the reason that anyone chooses abortion is not because they feel like it's a choice, but because they feel like they have no other choice. They've been pressured into believing that everything else is going to turn out much, much worse for them if they undergo this pregnancy, if they carry uh, pregnancy to term and, and raise the child. It's really striking. Frederica Matthews Green is a, a pro-life writer, and uh, she says from her perspective, no one wants an abortion the same way that she wants uh, an ice cream cone or a new car. She wants an abortion the way that an animal who's caught in a trap wants to chew off its own leg to get out. So I don't know that you can call that choice when a woman is is in a panic when she feels trapped. Conversely, then, what I think makes the biggest difference in 
reducing the numbers of abortion and respecting the sanctity of life, providing support for pregnant mothers is pregnancy resource centers. Since about the early 90s, the abortion rate has drastically gone down in the United States year over year, and that coincides with proliferation of pregnancy resource centers. I think that most women understand instinctively that they have a gift of new life growing inside of them when they're pregnant, and they have been designed by God to desire to provide for that life, to form relationship and raise that child to maturity. And so when someone comes alongside them in a difficult situation of surprise pregnancy and says, not only do we care about the life of your child, but your life, we want to see that you have not just material resources, but social emotional supports as well. And and we want to be a network for you, not just during pregnancy and delivery, but as you raise this child. And honestly, we'd like to share our entire lives with you. I think most women, when they receive that offer, they don't turn that down, which is why pregnancy resource centers have such a high success rate and make such a huge difference. Pastor Michael Salamink is our guest, executive director of Lutherans for Life. We're responding to the choice argument for abortion. He says getting rid of a problem is not the same as getting to a solution. We'll have him explain it next. Please include the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. in your year-end giving. You can donate online at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call 618-223-8385. For a year-end gift of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Over Ruled 3, Answering Arguments Against Christianity, and a new recording of 15 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support at the end of 2023. Join Lutherans for Life and Why for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 18th through Saturday, January 20th for the 2024 Why for Life Free Conference. Registration is open through December 15th. Learn more at why4life.org. Great events, speakers, and social time. The 2024 Why for Life Free Conference, January 18th through the 20th in Washington, D.C., Y4life.org. Defending life from beginning to end. You're listening to Issues Etc. During this Advent season, we recall the sacred moment when Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and placed him in a manger. The manger, a symbol of humility, teaches us the true meaning of Christmas. From all of us at Lutheran Church Extension Fund, may the simplicity of that manger inspire your Advent season. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial a podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're responding to the choice argument for abortion. 
with Pastor Michael Salomink. He is author of a chapter in our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3, Answering Arguments Against Christianity. His chapter is titled, Abortion is Just a Woman's Personal Choice. In addition to Pastor Salomink's chapter, Objections Overruled 3 contains chapters on racism, biblical inerrancy, the environment, evolution, gender fluidity, the Trinity, homosexuality, premarital sex, and more. For a year-end donation of $250 or more, we'll send you this book and a recording of 15 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. You can make a gift online at issueztc.org or by giving us a call, 618-223-8385. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support of the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. Pastor Salamink, you say that getting rid of a problem is not the same thing as getting to a solution. Explain that. Sometimes the reason, at least the superficial reason that's given to support a public policy of mandatory abortion access has to do with social difficulties. And I don't want to minimize any of these social difficulties, whether it be poverty or disability or inequality or abuse or sexual assault. These are all serious issues that entire cultures need to be able to work together to address because they cause widespread suffering and we can do something about them. The problem is abortion as a solution to those problems. Take, for example, the problem of abused and orphaned children. Abortion doesn't actually solve the problem of abuse or abandonment. What it does is put children to death. And I would ask folks to think about, do I want to be part of a world, part of a nation and a culture and a society where whenever there's a problem, whenever there is someone suffering, the way that we quote unquote resolve that is simply by putting the sufferer to death. There are a lot of of magnificent efforts that we can undertake together. As a matter of fact, the more hands and minds that are working on the problem, the quicker we're going to get to a solution and the the more effective that solution is going to be. So the more people we have working on it, the better it's going to be. So as we're working towards resolution, we need to distinguish between what genuinely addresses those problems and what just makes the people who suffer those problems go away. And I think What's going to make us stronger as a civilization is where we have more minds and hands who are collaborating on those difficult situations. So does that go for the cases, often abortion is argued for in the case of fetal disability or abnormality, does the same apply there? Absolutely it does. And I think we need to take a long, hard look at ourselves and ask whether or not we actually have a discriminatory or a prejudicial attitude towards our neighbors who suffer disabilities. Perhaps even our framework of thinking about disability is misleading. The truth is every human being has special needs. Every human being has individual ways in which we are dependent upon the people around us. And as we were saying before, that's part of what makes humankind wonderful. I don't know that it is wise or helpful for us to define some of those needs as disqualifying, right? So when doctors detect a fetal disability or deformity, a lot of times, even the medical professionals themselves will recommend termination of pregnancy. But would we do the same thing if we were talking about a toddler or a teenager or an adult? Suppose uh, one of our parents should 
be in a horrible automobile accident and develop some disabilities, some long-term injuries or conditions because of that? Would we, would we feel like the best way to address that would be simply to put them to death? The truth is I've met a lot of people who have been parents of or siblings of or children of persons who have some serious disabilities. And in no case have I ever met somebody who said, geez, I wish my loved one wasn't around. The value of human life is not dependent upon what we can do for each other, but upon the blessings that God gives simply by virtue of the fact that we have relationship with those people. You ask persons with disabilities, are they satisfied with their life? Do they enjoy the gifts that God has given them? And 99 times out of 100, absolutely they appreciate the blessings God gives them and the way that he allows them to serve other people. Our world is richer because we have human beings of differing kinds of characteristics and abilities. And I think we need to be honest with ourselves and maybe admit that the reason that we're uncomfortable with disability is not because of the suffering that it causes to someone around us, but because it makes us uncomfortable, right? Because when I think about, would I want to live that kind of life? Then I say to myself, well, I wouldn't want to. So why would this loved one want to? And, and sometimes there are people who have injuries or conditions that we simply can't relieve or resolve. And that brings us face to face with our own limitations, right? The fact that we are creatures, that we are not God. And we don't like that feeling. We don't like being the ones who are not in control. And so we'd rather just get rid of that situation than have to remember the fact that we rely on God to take care of a lot of things that we simply can't. What about the often cited case of rape or incest? Yeah, sexual assault is awful. It's perhaps one of the most heinous crimes that one human being can perpetrate against another. And if we're going to be a life-affirming, gospel-motivated culture, then we have to do everything we can in our power, marshal all of our resources to prevent, to apprehend, to prosecute, to remove sexual assault offenders. And we also need to invest extensively in support and recovery for the victims. And I think that's where abortion really becomes a problem. Is anyone asking the victims of sexual assault what they need? There's a nationwide community of survivors of sexual assault who either were conceived as a result of sexual assault or who themselves conceived as a result of sexual assault. Uh, it's an organization called Save the One. They tell two kinds of stories. Number one, those who conceived in sexual assault and gave into the pressure, the suggested solution that uh, abortion would make things better. They almost unanimously report that undergoing abortion simply compounded the trauma. Uh, it was like being assaulted all over again. I felt like my body was violated again. And then the second kind of, of narrative that they tell from their experience is those who conceive through sexual assault and carry that pregnancy to term talk about how that baby saved their life. I had another person who had been through this situation with me, right? The child is a victim too. Children of sexual assault don't ask for fathers who are criminals or mothers who are criminals. They don't ask to be brought into the world in a non-consensual way. And so mom and baby can bond in that circumstance of solidarity. But then these women who became mothers in this way will report that I was able to take back control, right? Part of what is so awful about sexual assault is how it deprives people of their independence. 
And so women will say that I was able to take a situation that someone else had intended for evil and bring good out of it using the distinctive abilities that God has designed women's bodies for, for nurturing and gestating and giving birth to a child. I was able to bring something wonderful out of this. And that actually was key in my healing, in my recovering from this difficult situation. We need to be honest with ourselves and, and recognize that there is nothing, abortion or otherwise, that is going to take away the memory of that experience of sexual assault. But we do need to marshal all the resources that we can to genuinely invest in support and recovery because what makes sexual assault wrong is also what makes abortion wrong. It's violating an innocent person's body. And we know that two wrongs don't make a right. The only solution in those situations is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the community that he provides. Finally, with about a minute here, what does the toleration of abortion do to our society? It basically divides us. It keeps us from genuinely caring about the well-being of our neighbors, from engaging in the life that we have together. More than that, though, it is toxic and corrupting to the soul because abortion is not just bad public policy. It's sinful. The regret and resentment of it will consume a person entirely unless the gospel of Jesus Christ shines the light of forgiveness upon that particular sin. That means that we, as Christians, we need to name abortion as a sin. We need to oppose it as evil, but also directly and explicitly apply, uh, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God loves even those who have participated in the abortion of their own children, that Jesus died for those sins, and he does not want to lose another life the life of mom and dad is just as valuable as the life that was already lost. Jesus, in his grace, can take even something as awful as our mistakes of abortion and bring some redemptive good out of it. Pastor Michael Salamink is executive director of Lutherans for Life. He's author of a chapter in our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3, Answering Arguments Against Christianity. His chapter is titled, Abortion is Just a Woman's Personal Choice. Lutherans for Life equips Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Learn about their service and check out their free pro-life resources at lutheransforlife.org, lutheransforlife.org. Michael, thank you. And thank you, Pastor Wilkin. It's been a delightful conversation. Tuesday on Issues Etc., we'll look forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary talking with Pastor Sean Denzer about John the Baptist preparing the way in Mark chapter 1. And on Wednesday, we'll have Pastors Brian Wolfmiller and Brian Ketchelmeyer respond to your unanswered Bible questions. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.